Hello, baseball fans. Welcome to Sully Baseball. This is the podcast where there is no offseason, and we do talk baseball 52 weeks out of the year. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm recording this on a very windy evening in Pasadena, California, overlooking the historic Rose Bowl. Well, folks, uh, this is actually the longest time I've spent between doing podcasts because, well, this one's dropping a little late, but, you know, it's a Friday night, talking baseball, and I'm in my kitchen. I'm making dinner for my boys. One of my boys just walked in. My other boy just walked in. Your hands are up. Now, why are your hands up? Now, do you have a question to ask everyone here? Hold on. Let's go to Aiden first. Aiden, what do you have to say to everyone? How are you overlooking the Rose Bowl? You know what, buddy? We're trying. This is we're creating an illusion. I want people to think I'm in a glorious studio that overlooks the. There's one of the most famous. You're in a kitchen. I'm in the kitchen. Yes, this is called visual. I could say I'm standing on top of my dragon. Hey, this is Sully Baseball, and I'm standing on top of my dragon. And because it's audio. Not visual, I can paint the picture. Instead, you guys come walking and say, No, you're not overlooking the Rose Bowl. You're destroying the illusion. If I was doing a radio show, it's like, Oh, yes, and now we're bringing in the famous dragon or the famous giant with Cyclops. That's not a Cyclops, it's just an actor sitting in a chair drinking a Mountain Dew. Is this what you know? What do you want now? You just said when we walked in, he just said you're in your kitchen. <laughs> all right, all right. You know what? This is such a disaster. I may have to start this podcast over, okay? Sorry. Hold on. Let's see. You want to go? Great. Right, let's cue the music. Two, three, four. Hello, baseball fans, and welcome to Sully Base. All right, fine. Get out of here. Get out of here. Those are my sons destroying the illusion of what I'm trying to create here. Oh, good Lord. You see what I have to deal with? Do you see what I have to deal with? I have to deal with this. So, um, anyway, let's uh, let's get back down to talking about whatever the heck I was talking about. It's, uh, it's baseball games are going on now as I'm as I'm talking to you here in my kitchen as I've now spoiled the illusion there, and I am making dinner for the boys. And I decided, you know what? Like just like the old days when I would find crazy goofy times to do a podcast, why not? Why not do it now? And hey, a lot's going on. A lot is going on in baseball. And, you know, there's as we're looking around, the Red Sox have a lead over the Cubs, and 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 a significant thing happened in the game that's going on between Pittsburgh and Miami. We're going to talk a little bit about Miami a little bit because there's some big news going on there. But I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher this name, and and the fact that I'm butchering this name is actually part of what I'm going to be talking about here. But the the Pirates have a player, second baseman, Gift Mpodnagope, Mpodnagope, am I going to, Mpodnagope, Mpodnagope, Gift Mpodnagope, I'm going to try to say that name correctly, he is is hitting the snot out of the ball. And he got an RBI. He got his first ever RBI in the major leagues. He's only been playing a handful of games. Granted, it is a small sample size. But Imponagope is so far today reached base four times. He's tripled. 
He's he's three for three with a walk, an RBI, and two runs scored. He's currently batting 800. He's batting freaking 800. Now, this is the second game in the majors, and maybe something can happen, okay? But in Impo Nagope, and if I'm mispronouncing it, I, I'm sorry, um, but he has been in the Pittsburgh Pirates minor league organization since 2009. He's 27 years old. He's finally made it to the majors. Uh, played a little bit last year. No, he played last year in AAA, but he didn't get the call. Didn't play particularly well. But it is, it is significant. It is significant because he was born in uh, Petersburg, South Africa. He was, oh, he, there's uh, the oven right there. So let me pause this for a second. All right, I put the thing in the oven so we can all relax. Could all relax. Thank you very much. Uh, but he's the first major league player born in Africa. He is a native of South Africa. And this is something that I have stated. This is something I've talked about. And it's one of the things that's great about baseball. The fact that, you know, the World Series is indeed the best players in the world. Now, Gift, oh, God, I have to see his name pronounced phonetically. Impo Nagope is playing for Pittsburgh. Is he from Pittsburgh? No. But he is part of a team where there are players from all around the world playing for that team. He just happens to have a P on his hat because that's where he's playing for. That's the team that he plays for right now, Pittsburgh Pirates. But the thing that we have to do in terms of expanding baseball and getting baseball's uh, popularity going and, and increasing its visibility and making the game better is to find the best players around the world and finding players in places where, do you know what, they're not from, from new places. From places where, hey, look at that. There's a second baseman who, two games into his major league career, is hitting the snot out of the ball. Are there other players in South America, South Africa? Are there other players? And you know, pirates have famously looked for people in India. You know, let's let's expand it. Let's get more people looking into the game. Let's go into Europe. Now, I don't know if this is going to be a rare thing, because take, for example, the island of Jamaica, which is in the Caribbean, and there's no shortage of players who have come out of the Caribbean, whether it's Cuba, whether it's Puerto Rico, whether it's uh, the Dominican Republic, but for whatever reason, only four or five players in history have ever been born in Jamaica and made it to the major leagues. So I don't know if this is going to be a rare thing, or maybe it will be a... An everyday occurrence. But I think it's a wonderful thing. The more we get people from around the world, from new places, not new places in terms of it being geologically new, but new places in terms of, hey, here's where a good player could come from. Here's where we could scout. I've thought for years that maybe the greatest third baseman in history is playing in some country in the Middle East that doesn't know it. 
that some breakaway Soviet republic that ends in Stan has the greatest left-handed reliever of all time, and it's our duty as a world of baseball is to go into those places as missionaries. Now, you go around the history of California, there's no shortage of missions. Every other town has a mission street. And they used to go around and being missionaries all around here, converting the natives to the, to the religion. And you, anyone who listens to this podcast, and I know I do, knows my thoughts on religion. And they're not all positive and, and hunky-dory and lovey-dovey. Because I think you know, converting someone to another faith, I don't know, I'm not a big fan of that. I'm not a big fan of stuff like that. But what I can be a fan of is being missionaries to countries where there is no baseball and bringing the gospel of Mays, Aaron, Clemente, and Robinson to those different countries and say, hey, wait a minute. You want to learn a great game. You want to, you have a dream of being either coming to America or knowing or becoming well-known or whatever it is, here's a key. Here's a damn key. Or learn what is, in my very humble and modest opinion, is the greatest game of them all. A game where everyone gets a turn at bat. A game where the greatest players could be tall, could be thin, could be fat, could be short. Doesn't matter. Can you hit the pitch? Can you throw the pitch? Greatest offensive player was a big tubby guy named Babe Ruth. One of the greatest pitchers I ever saw in my life looked like a math professor named Greg Maddox. Satchel Paige was a skinny rail, as was Ted Williams. Tony Gwynn had his belly hanging over his belt. Different size, different shapes, different religions different ethnicities, hit the curveball, throw a curveball, and there you go. You, too, could be like gift. Oh, God, I'm going to blow it. Imponagope. And here's the thing. Eventually, if he's good enough, everyone will know how to pronounce his name. That's the Carl Yastrzemski syndrome. If you're good enough, you learn how to say it. If you're good enough, and if you hit, then you'll earn your spot. And you'll know where you belong on the damn team. And that's one of the beauties of this game. Preach that gospel. Bring that around the world. And make it anyone who says that ridiculously tired thing, you know, the World Series is just North America. There's a bigger world than that. Shut up. The players come from all around the world to play the World Series. And so let's open it up. That's what I want. I want every country in the world sending their best baseball players to major to the major leagues. That's what I want. I want to know if there's a third baseman in France or a reliever in Mongolia. I want to know if Nepal has the greatest catcher we've ever seen, or on the island of Fiji is a right-handed slugger who would put Hank Aaron to shame. 
Let's go find him. Let's go find him. And maybe, just maybe, we can open up South Africa and that gigantic continent. Africa's gigantic. There's a lot of countries in Africa. And maybe there's a shortstop there too. That's my mission work in baseball. Now, I mentioned Miami. Now, we got this weird news that maybe Derek Jeter and Jeb Bush are going to get together and buy the Marlins. Now, a few years ago, I was with Michael Shore of uh, Current TV. He was a guest on the podcast, and he has a soft spot in his heart. We both have soft spots in our hearts for the Marlins. I, just, I do because of the absolutely bananas history of the team. The history that, that almost makes no sense. The fact of the matter that the team is, has never won a division title. Never. And only twice have made the postseason. And both times they went on to win the World Series. And if they win a World Series, either in 2017, 2018, or 2019, they'll be one of the few franchises in the history of baseball to win World Series in three, diff- three consecutive decades. And they've yet to win a division title. And they've almost never have fielded a competitive team. I mean, you really can count the years the Marlins contended almost on your ears. Two. The only other time they contended for wildcard spots in um, really 2005, for a while in 2008 and nine, but really didn't weren't huge factors in those years. And they have the new stadium, which is weird. And they have an owner that everybody, and I mean everybody, hates. And one thing Michael Schur and I were talking about, how if someone buys the Marlins, the bar is so, so low for that new owner to be beloved by the franchise that all you have to be is not be Jeffrey Loria. You just, are you Jeffrey Loria? No? Then congratulations, you're a step up. A man who's won a championship. He's won a championship as an owner for the Marlins. Mike Illich never was with the Detroit Tigers with all the money and the effort that he spent. That he's beloved in Detroit. Jeffrey Laurie has a championship in 2003 under his ownership, and he is vilified because of all the times he's broken down the team and has basically lied. He seems like disreputable and he helped destroy the Expos and there's all these reasons to not like Jeffrey Loria. So Derek Jeter and Jeb Bush are jumping into the realm because why not? Jeter's bored and sitting on a big pile of Scrooge McDuck money. Jeb Bush really thought he was going to be president at this point. He thought it was his turn. He's like, I'm the smart brother and I'm I'm the one who doesn't get to be president. Well, my brother owned a team. Maybe I'll own a team. I'll buy the Marlins. Now, of course, I love there's some Yankee fans who are like, well, what do we do if Derek Jeter, their beloved Jeter, buys a team? Well, you know, he could buy the Yankees, but I don't see that happening. Even though I really, really, really do think the Steinbrenner kids are going to sell. But there you go. There's only so many teams you can buy. 
And I really felt that it would have behooved Major League Baseball to step in and force the Marlins to sell the damn team the way they did with the L.A. Dodgers a few years ago with the McCourts. And you know, they pushed the McCourts out. They brought in the new group, headed, you know, supposedly headed by Magic Johnson. And, of course, they have tons of goodwill, and they have so much goodwill that even, compa- even with all the things like the losing in the postseason and the, the terrible TV situation they've had, is no matter what, you think, well, at least it's not the McCourts. So, I mean, there's so many things that can go right from this. There's so many things that could be positive from this. There's so many things with Jeter and Bush. Say, hey, look, at we'll go to Miami. Jeter's already in Florida. Jeb Bush was the governor of Florida. They'll find enough money to buy it. The fans will like them because, hey, it's not Jeffrey Loria. You're in Miami, and Miami, they don't have to worry about a new stadium. They don't have to worry about how do you sell people. Hey, do you want to be a millionaire in Miami? That's what we're selling you. You get to be a millionaire in Miami. Okay. And we have an ownership that isn't necessarily going to trade you when you ask for $5.50 above minimum wage. Boom. That's all you have to do. This is what we thought was going to happen with the team when they got the new stadium, but they still had Loria. That's the common factor in all the disappointments that they've had since winning the 2003 championship. So remove him. Look it. Only positivity can come from this. Hey, my son Aiden walked back in there. Open up the oven here as we look over the Rose Bowl, see how that pizza's doing. Okay, it's time to take that out. Grab the oven mitt right there. I'm having my son stick his hand into an oven right now. Only, only terrible things can happen from this. Okay, p- take that out and put it back on there. Okay, close that. Close it all the way. See if you can figure it out. You want to go to Caltech, see if you can figure out how to close an oven. There you go. Figure it out. Encore, encore. All right, guys, get out of here. There you go. We just witnessed something possibly horrifying. I am all for this sale of the Marlins. I am all for Jeter owning it. I think it would be good for baseball to have him in there. I think it would be good for uh, public relations for baseball to have positivity going on with the Miami Marlins. It would be good for baseball to have Miami be a baseball city. It should be. It has all the earmarks of a baseball city. There's people from New York, people from the Caribbean. It's a city where it's warm. It's a city where they play freaking baseball. So so let's go. Let's find that money. Only good things can happen. You know, on on the, the watch of franchises, what needs to be done There are really three franchises we got to do work with at this point. We need a new stadium in Oakland. We got to figure out what the hell is going on in Tampa. And we got to get new ownership with the Marlins. Boom, this will be one third of the franchise you need to deal with. And then we can start talking expansion. Now, look it. I want to talk about one other thing before we get to the whole team that should have won segment of this. 
Uh, it looks like baseball tonight is no longer happening on ESPN. Obviously, there was a ton of layoffs at ESPN. And in some ways, it's sad. Obviously, there's a lot of really, really good people who lost their job. I mean, Jason Stark, for God's sakes. I mean, some of the people that you saw were dropped by ESPN. You're sitting there going, oh, my God. Really? And then you see some of the people who, who are still there. Really? And baseball tonight is not going to be a, a daily show anymore. And, you know, and, and all these wonderful writers and studio personalities and all these people who are really, really good at their job at ESPN are now going to be gone. They're not going to be on ESPN anymore. And you're seeing that baseball is becoming less and less of a factor on ESPN. And, and you know, for people about my age and people who, who really got into baseball and were big baseball fans throughout the 90s and early 2000s, I mean, that's kind of startling because ESPN was essential. I mean, the way they covered baseball, the way that there was a daily show where they focused on baseball, that was revolutionary. I mean, the way you would get the highlights, the way you would get the updates, the way they would do the live break-ins, the way that that's how you, you know, many people were introduced to Peter Gammons. That's the way people saw, you know, the way you saw web gems. I mean, think about how, for, for if you were raised before that, if you were in a pre-ESPN era, it, it's almost hard to describe how revolutionary it was. Because you had, in order to understand, like, if you want to catch the scores, you saw, um, you would wait for, like, either the 10 o'clock news or the 11 o'clock news, would have the they would run the scores at the end of the sports, and if you want to see highlights, maybe they'd have one. They have the local games, and maybe if there was an extraordinary highlight, they would show it. But usually not, and usually you have to wait for this week in baseball. Bum 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 ba ba da da, and at the end they go dun 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 dun. I mean, you have to wait for that, and then you would see some highlights for the week. But most of the time, you that, that was like the only times you ever got to see players who weren't the local team. And that's something that is extraordinary of what happened with baseball tonight in ESPN is being able to see regular highlights of other teams, of other players, of other web gems, and have it be not something you had to wait until Saturday to see. Or, you know, you'd watch SportsCenter, but, you know, they would shove in a lot of football, they shove in basketball, this other stuff. Just baseball. That's all we're watching. We're watching baseball highlights. We're watching baseball clips. And it was extraordinary. And you always, if you grew up, Post that, you don't understand how significant that was. How you're able to follow other teams. For someone like me who had moved away, I'm a Boston fan, was living in California, then I was living in New York, I could follow other teams. And for me, it never got better 
1993, and I was spending a tremendous amount of time with my father in 1993. And in, we were spending time with, he, my dad was living in Palo Alto, but he was spending a lot of time in the East Coast with me that summer. And that fall, when the Giants and the Braves were involved in that absolutely wild pennant race where the Giants won 103 games, the Braves won 104 games, and it went down to the last day. And we would watch. We didn't miss a game. We couldn't watch each individual game, but we saw the highlights every damn day. Saw the Giants highlights, saw the Braves highlights. It was incredible. We couldn't wait for baseball tonight to start. And revolutionized how we were able to follow the games. Now, of course, it revolutionized it in a cable era. Now, I've talked about this. I've talked about this in 2014. I talked about this when I did a podcast from Bristol, Connecticut. We are living in a post-ESPN world. The significance of ESPN has moved on. In our town of South Pasadena, California, there is a building that used to be a blockbuster video. Blockbuster Video had a store in our town. And there was a period of time where Blockbuster Video was an incredibly important store, company, entity in the world of entertainment. Because we got our entertainment from videotape, from DVDs and everything like that. And the main place you went to rent them was freaking Blockbuster. So if Blockbuster was going to rent a movie or hold a movie in their, in their library there, it became important to get in their good graces. became very, very powerful. Now Blockbuster Video doesn't exist anywhere. And they're not coming back. And this is going to be something that sounds mean. But eventually ESPN will be like Blockbuster Video. Blockbuster Video hung on until a few years ago, but then, plink, it's gone. Do you know why? Because we now get our movies from different places. Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, wherever you're getting, we get our, you know, if Blockbuster got into that business instead of the real estate business, we'd be on Blockbuster online, but they got into it too late. And now they're gone. Now, the idea of going to one central place for your sports, what ESPN used to be in the era of Ken Griffey Jr., everything in baseball, but of Michael Jordan, the era of Troy Aikman, of all that stuff from the 90s, where ESPN was the hub of all sports, everything sports. That's the origin of those great sports center commercials where they have athletes and everything wandering around because it was the center of sports. So all the players are walking around, all the athletes. It's not that way anymore. Because as much as I just, and again, I'm repeating some of the stuff I've said in previous podcasts, but as much as I wax poetic about the significance and the power and the glory of ESPN in its glory days, and I used to not miss Oberman 
and Dan Patrick and, you know, Robin Roberts and Bob Lee and Charlie Steiner and and Chris Berman and, and, and Craig Kilborn and Stuart Scott and all those. I saw all of them. You know, I watched all of them because they were all great. And I can wax nostalgic for it. But do you know what? I can't remember the last time I watched SportsCenter. And Baseball Tonight is no longer a staple on my TV. Not because I'm not a baseball fan. I think I've proven that fact that I still am. But I check the highlights on my phone, on my computer. I flip to MLB Network before I flip to ESPN because ESPN could be covering another damn sport. So the specialization, much like Blockbuster, is no longer the place you go to for movies. ESPN is no longer the place I go to for sports. And I bet it's the same for you. And no matter what they do, no matter what talking head show they have or people screaming at each other show or panel show or whatever, I used to, I mean, there were shows that were staples of the sports reporters, part of the interruption, beyond the, you know, outside the line, sports center, baseball tonight. I watched all of them, but now I go online and I watch stuff, and so do you. And so while it's sad that this thing that we all loved and cherished is gone it's like Blockbuster or closer to my kids it's like they're Thomas the Tank Engine trains my kids used to play Thomas the Tank Engine all the time they don't anymore, do you know why? they've moved on to other things because they play with other things now we're going to be playing with other things now we play with our devices we're more specialized. NBA fans go to the NBA.com. I go to MLB.com. NFL fans, wherever you are. We can, it no longer matters, oh, East Coast bias, West Coast bias with the coverage. Why does that matter? If you want to have your, your, your news feed be of the Lansing lug nuts, you can have that be the case. Because we specialize in it. And ESPN is not that. So while it's sad, it's one of the casualties of this sort of specialization. Now, for me personally, I'm a little nervous because there's now going to be a tremendous amount of talent out there. And I guarantee you some of them are going to be doing podcasts. And so your pal Sully is going to have to do something to stick out amongst all of these amazingly talented people. But that's not the point. The thing that's saddest is some of the people who are leaving ESPN, but they'll land on their feet. They'll find something else to do. What's sad is ESPN is going to continue to try to do the get people yelling and saying controversial crap and trying to do that route because that gets clicks. You know, the, the we need to get the most clicks in our culture is, I think, going to be the downfall of Western civilization. And the fact that they would get rid of really smart, intelligent writers and, and commentators and have more people trying to have hot takes. Hot takes. 
is kind of uh, sad. But do you know what? ESPN, I, I, I grew up on it. I, did, I, I came of age watching ESPN. But do you know what? I also came of age watching Letterman. You know, how often do you, again, I'm using analogies I've used before, but how often do you wait for the 6 o'clock news to get your news? How often do you wait for 11 o'clock news? How often do you stay up till 11.30 to get your comedy? No, I bet you get all your late night clips from people passing it around on social media. How often do you wait for the sports at the end of the 11 o'clock news to get the scores? More to point, how often do you wait for Sports Center? I used to wait for Sports Center. Now, I can get scores in real time. And because of that, the relevance of ESPN has gone away. So while it's worth a salute, we can't be stunned that it happened. It's a casualty. It's worth our respect, and it's worth our saluting. But you know what? Maybe it's time to say goodbye. All right. Well, I'm I'm feeding my kids right now. And while I'm doing that, let's go through the latest part of the ongoing series of the teams that should have won. Now, if you don't know what this series is, then this is basically I'm going through all 30 teams and figuring out what year where the team had a real shot to win that they should have won in terms of it would have been the best combination of players, of the backstory, that it would have been the greatest championship of that team's history where they didn't win it. And, you know, we've had, you know, we talked about the 2001 Yankees. We've talked about the uh, 1978 Red Sox. We've talked about the 1993 uh, both the 1993 Braves and Giants, which makes Cubs fan with an eight, lose his collective mind that I possibly could have a year with two entries. The 82 Angels were another one. I've, we've done a few of these. The, two, the, the money ball year for the A's in 2002. So those were all years where if that team had won in that year, it would have been the greatest moment in that franchise's history where they didn't win a title. So the next one we're going to do is actually, I've, I've, this one's been suggested to me. And I'm going to just go through it because I think it makes a lot of sense. I'm doing the Cincinnati Reds today. Now, the Reds are a team that at one point had one of the greatest teams in the history of baseball. That is remembered to this day as one of the greatest teams in the history of baseball. The Big Red Machine, which won back-to-back World Series titles. In the 70s, won two other pennants in the 70s, made two more trips to the playoffs in the 70s. Throughout the 70s, the Reds, between 70 and 79, the city of Cincinnati saw in October in 70, 72, 73, 75, 76, and 79. So six of the Octobers between 70 and 79 saw postseason play in Cincinnati with some of the great players of the era playing at that time. Now, since then, there has been sporadic pockets of postseason play. They won the World Series in a stunning fashion in 1990. They won a division title in 1995 and actually were in first place when the strike hit in 1994. 
They lost a one-game playoff for the wild card in 1999, then missed the postseason altogether in the 2000s. They contended one year, but then in they made it to the playoffs in three straight seasons, in or not in three out of four seasons. Sorry, in 2010, 2012, and the wild card game in 2013. Of course, no one remembers that because they didn't win any of those years. One of those years I really, really considered because it was in 2012. In 2012, the Reds had their best chance to really, really make a lot of damage. They played the Giants, and that was this weird year. It was the first year they had the wild card game. And it was a weird year that they formatted the division series as 2-3 instead of 2-2-1. So the first two games in the division series were played in San Francisco. And the Reds came in to San Francisco and kicked the tar out of the Giants. Game one was a 5-2 final, and game two was a 9-0 final, where, get this, Madison Bumgarner got bombed. And so the Reds were up 2-0, to bagel, with three games played in their home park, and all they had to do was win one game in their home park, and they would have won the division series. And they would have gone on to play St. Louis, which would have been a barn burner. And of course, St. Louis did some, you know, took care of some dirty work because they beat the Washington Nationals with the best record in the National League. So the Reds would have had home field advantage in the National League Championship Series if they could win one game at home. And game three, on the verge of a sweep, the Reds had the 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 division series winning run at the plate in the bottom of the ninth. All they had to do was score one run, and Scott Rowland hit a deep drive to left that hooked foul. If it didn't hook foul, no one would have remembered the Giants in 2012. The Giants won the World Series that year. No one would, they would have been swept. No one remembers the teams that get swept in the division series. And the Reds would have moved on, and they probably would have... Won the pennant. And maybe Dusty Baker has his title. And maybe players like Joey Votto and Johnny Cueto and, and Brandon Phillips and even, even Bronson Arroyo and Jay Bruce I mean, and, and you know, Roland, as I mentioned before, Ryan Ludwig, all these players who you know, were really good careers with the Reds, they would have had that crowning moment. They got that, and then they had the winning run at the plate in the bottom of the ninth of game five. But alas, it didn't happen. And the next year they lost the wild card game after a pretty crazy uh, National League Central race that was going on. And then after Dusty Baker skedaddled, the Reds have really not been a factor. And that year, 2012, that was their clearest year that they could have had a championship. And, you know, had the title for some of these players. And some of them played a long time with the Reds. That was one I really considered. But the one I'm going with is the one that when I've spoken with Cincinnati fans, they and I've emailed with a few and some have posted online, and I just get the sense there's a real sense of anger 
and injustice about 1981. In 1981, the Reds won more games than any team in baseball. They had the best record in baseball. No other team in baseball won as many games. They were 66 and 42 in a shortened season. They had the best win total. So how did they do in the postseason? I'll tell you how they did. They didn't. Not that they got swept. If they got swept, that's one thing. And there's many times the best team in baseball, in terms of win-loss record, does get swept. And when that happens, you tip your cap to the team that wins. It said you faced a tough opponent and you won and you swept them. No. What happened, they didn't play in the postseason. The team with the best record didn't play in the freaking postseason because of the way they set up the postseason that year. Because there was a strike that took place that wiped out for about two months of the season, when baseball resumed, they said, okay, here's how it works. Whoever was in first place at the time of the strike is automatically in the playoffs. Now, of course, that's bizarre. A team clinched a playoff berth in, what, June, July, with no celebration? And now we're going to start at zero. And we're going to play the last few months, and whoever's in first place at the end of that will have, will have a first half and second half. And they'll play in a divisional championship series. Now, the owner of the Reds heard that and said, wait a minute, we finished half a game out of first in the first part of the, the season. So they didn't make the postseason. The Dodgers, they finished half a game behind the Dodgers when they went to the strike. But no one knew that that was to clinch this playoff spot. That was retroactively a clinching. And the owner of the Reds said, wait a minute, what happens if we finish in second place in the second half? We have the most amount of wins, but we missed the playoffs because we didn't finish in first in either half. And then the owner said, ah, don't worry about that. That, that. that will happen. And that's exactly what happened. That is precisely what happened. They finished just behind the Dodgers of the first half and just behind the Astros in the second half. And guess what happened? To those teams that finished in first place in the first half, do you know what they did? They coasted. They all coasted. There was no team that was in first place in the first and second half because everyone was like, all right, let's, put it, let's just drift on in. Let's just take it on in. Let's just put it in neutral. If they went simply by the win-loss record, you would have had the Cardinals play the Reds in the National League Championship Series. Now, the Cardinals didn't get in either. Now, one of the things that did happen in 1981 is we had the only time in history that Montreal ever played in the postseason. Okay. And you had arguably the perfect Dodger team win the World Series that year. A team that included Garvey, Lopes, Russell and Say, that outfield, and lots of memorable Dodgers like Dusty Baker and Burt Hooten and Fernando Valenzuela and Mike Sosha and, I mean, just up and down a team that was filled with players that you remember with the Dodgers, Jay Johnstone, all these players all played on that 81 team. So in a sense, it's nice that that happened for the Dodgers, 
but the Reds had the best record in baseball and weren't allowed to play. The best team was not invited to the dance. And you take a look at that Reds team. There was some holdovers from the Big Red Machine on there. Dan Dreesen was on the team. George Foster had a fine season, and he was still there. Ken Griffey was still there. Johnny Bench was still there. And you had Tom Seaver on the team. And Tom Seaver had his, you know, had a wonderful season that year. Mario Soto was on the team, and he had a wonderful year as a starting pitcher. And you're looking around, and you saw that you had the likes of all those players I just said, plus Dave, oh, Dave Concepcion was still on the team. I mean, there were remnants of the Big Red. It was like the last hurrah of the Big Red machine. Because by 1982, they had really broken the team up. Foster was gone. Bench was, had only one or two years left. Seaver was gone in a couple of years. This was really the last moments of one of the great teams of all time. And they, they pulled together, and they put together the best record in baseball. And not only that, but there's another element, too, which is a Boston Red Sox fan I can't help but bring up. that The manager of the team was John McNamara. And John McNamara's legacy in baseball was mismanaging the Red Sox in the 1986 World Series. John McNamara is a baseball lifer who, by all accounts of the people who played with him, was someone who was a, a, a lovely and caring and, and intelligent man. A baseball, a man who devoted his entire life to the game. That's who John McNamara was. And that his legacy, this would have been his shot of winning a title, winning that championship, and having that be his legacy. But most importantly, this was the best team in baseball. I mean, by using, I know wins and losses can sometimes be a, a strange metric for how we pick and choose our, you know, which teams are the best. But that, that's how we do it. It's never not going to be flawed. Even run differential and everything. Like, there's no way that will be perfect. And the way we were doing it then was win-losses. We do the same thing now. And if you win more games than anyone else in baseball, then guess what? You should get a chance to try to win the World Series. I don't think I'm speaking out of turn when I say that. And by the likes of the, 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 the Reds fans that I've talked to, it seems like they kind of agree. And it would have been fun. You know, because the 80s were about to begin, and the 80s had begun in 81. I guess it's safe to say and the 80s had begun in 81. But it would have been like one last... Hello, one last salute to that great team. We've been in the 70s last gasp to have a postseason with Bench, Foster, Concepcion, Griffey, and all of them. At least it would have been fair. You know, at least you would have been able to say, hey, the best team's invited to the dance. So, yeah. The team that should have won, I'm going to say it, it's the Cincinnati Reds of 1981. Hey, 
I, I know we got a lot of people who listen to this and are fans of this team or that team. Tell me what team you want me to pick as the team that should have won. I got a bunch of teams I haven't done yet, and some teams I'm scratching my head about. Cubs I'm scratching my head about. White Sox I'm scratching my head about. Padres I'm scratching my head about. Hey, if you're uh, if you're a Dodger fan, have I done the Dodgers yet? I don't think I have. Let me know. Let me know. If I haven't picked your team yet, go to Sully Baseball on Twitter and say, hey, here's my team. Here, oh, I'll tell you the one that I can't figure out. You want to know the one I've been looking at? I can't figure out. I can't figure out the Marlins. So if you're a Marlin fan and you're listening to me, I have a couple of ideas, but I, just let me know which Marlins team is the team that should have won because I'm having trouble with that. Well, anyway, this is this week's edition of Sully Baseball. Hey, this has been covered, covered grounds from Miami to South Africa to Cincinnati. That's a roundabout route. That's a Priceline flight where they kind of route you to different airports. Well, as the sun is setting here in Pasadena over the historic Rose Bowl, which I could see from my kitchen, then as I've created the illusion here that once I've done with this podcast, as my son has come in with an expression on his face as if to say, huh, I'm not buying what my father is saying. Well, anyway, here's what you should do. You should go to sullybaseball.com. You can like me on Facebook. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram. I'm everywhere. The music, as always, is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kaliski. Cooking dinner for my kids and talking about baseball all over the world. This has been the latest edition of Sully Baseball, the weekly podcast where we talk about baseball 52 weeks out of the year. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. As always, please call me Sully.